Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. there fellow flyers welcome to the plane crash podcast this is your captain of the podcast michael bauer welcome to part two of malaysia airlines flight 17 we are just going to hop straight back into the story after this short message today's episode of pcpc is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online therapy provider built for the 21st century world BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible. And this is an important mission because finding a therapist can be really difficult, especially when options are limited in your area. With BetterHelp, you can find a therapist that fits your schedule and your needs. No more worrying about driving across town, getting stuck in traffic, and searching for a parking space. You and your therapist can meet from the comfort of your own home. With BetterHelp's trained professionals, you can make sure that you're practicing healthy habits and becoming the best version of yourself that you can be. For more information and to get 10% off your first month, visit betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. And thanks again to the folks at BetterHelp. All right, you ready for part two? Let's get into it. Now, the last we spoke, we left off with Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 in the skies above western Ukraine. We shifted from the flight and took a long look at Ukrainian history. We went over the formation of Kievan Rus, then moved on to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Then we spoke about the Russian Empire, then the Soviet Union, and ended on Ukrainians voting for independence in December 1991. Along with voting for independence, Ukrainians also voted for president. Leonid Kravchuk, the leader of the Soviet Ukraine parliament, became Ukraine's first president with 61% of the vote. After becoming an independent country in December 1991, Ukraine was suddenly the country with the third largest nuclear arsenal on the planet with about 1,700 nuclear warheads. Now, though Ukraine possessed these nuclear weapons, it didn't have a nuclear program and it didn't have operational control of these weapons. Ukraine had physical control of 1,700 nukes, but it didn't have the nuclear codes or the ability to launch these weapons. In December 1994, three years after becoming an independent nation, Ukraine signed the Budapest Memorandum, 
which gave Ukraine security assurances from Russia, the United States, and the United Kingdom in exchange for giving up the country's stockpile of nuclear weapons. The memorandum included a recognition from all parties that Ukraine was an independent country and that its sovereignty and borders would be respected by Russia, the U.S., and the U.K., There was also an assurance that none of these powerful countries, like the U.S., Russia, or U.K., would use force against Ukraine in the future, or meddle in its economic affairs. Throughout this first Ukrainian administration, headed by President Kravchuk, Ukraine experienced economic turmoil and corruption issues as the country struggled to make a smooth transition from existing as a socialist state to suddenly becoming a more capitalist-driven economy. In 1994, Leonid Kuchma defeated Kravchuk and became Ukraine's second president, serving from 1994 until 2005. Under Kuchma, Ukraine continued to experience corruption issues and a slow-growing economy. Kuchma developed close ties with Russia and presided over increased censorship in the media. For example, during the Kuchma years, some newspapers that supported opposition parties were forced to close, and there was a repression of journalists that were critical of the Kuchma administration. Kuchma declined to run for a third term in 2004, which set up a very contentious 2004 election between two victors, Viktor Yushchenko and Viktor Yanukovych. First, let's talk about Yanukovych. Viktor Yanukovych had a really tough upbringing. His mother passed away when he was only two years old. He grew up in eastern Ukraine and lived with his grandmother before spending his later teenage years and early 20s in and out of jail for robbery and assault. After getting out of jail between the 1970s and mid-1990s, Yanukovych worked for trucking and transport companies in Donetsk, a city in eastern Ukraine. He spent 20 years observing the importance of coal mining to eastern Ukraine and climbed through the industry ranks as a transport manager. In 1997, at the age of 47, he was appointed governor of Donetsk Oblast. An oblast is basically an administrative region inside Ukraine, kind of like a state or a province in other countries. And eventually Yanukovych served as the prime minister of Ukraine after being appointed by President Kuchma in 2002. After Kuchma announced that he wasn't going to pursue re-election in 2004, Yanukovych decides to throw his hat in the ring and run for president. His strongest support comes from the regions in southern and eastern Ukraine, regions close to Russia or bordering Russia. Yanukovych is viewed by the public as a continuation of the prior 13 years of Ukrainian government. During that period of time, there were closer ties with Russia. Journalists critical of the government often disappear under mysterious circumstances Oligarchs are making a bunch of money by taking over old Soviet infrastructure for pennies on the dollar. And Yanukovych is perceived as this tough guy that lived a rough childhood, was in prison, built a career as a manager in transport, 
and sort of had a gangster image or vibe. You know, he greased the right wheels and now he's running to be president of Ukraine. On the other side of the 2004 election, you have Viktor Yushchenko. Yushchenko was born in northern Ukraine. He grew up speaking Ukrainian, had two parents that were both teachers. He went to a university in western Ukraine. He graduated and started working as an accountant and banker during the 1970s and 80s. Like Yanukovych, Yushchenko served as a prime minister under Kuchma between December 1999 and May 2001. He was removed from the position of prime minister after being deemed too confrontational with Ukraine's coal mining and natural gas industry leaders. In 2004, Yushchenko decides to run for president, and he's viewed by the Ukrainian public as an opposition figure. Opposition to the current government that has basically existed since Ukraine broke away from the Soviet Union and gained its independence in 1991. Yushchenko runs on a platform that focuses on reducing corruption, strengthening Ukrainian identity and autonomy, developing close ties with the EU, and implementing many reforms to government. The 2004 Ukrainian presidential election is an ugly election. Yanukovych, the eastern Ukrainian tough guy closely aligned with Russia, accuses Yushchenko of being a Nazi. On September 5th, 2004, Yushchenko, the pro-EU candidate, has dinner with several senior Ukrainian government officials and becomes very ill afterwards. He's flown to Vienna, and doctors find that he has an extremely high concentration of a poison, dioxin, in his system. Due to the poisoning, his face becomes disfigured and changes color. Many suspect Yanukovych, the guy kind of viewed as having a rough upbringing and gangster ties, as the one that ordered the poisoning of his opponent, Yushchenko. Despite being poisoned and hospitalized for a while, Yushchenko survives. The election is held in late November 2004, and despite exit polls showing a lead of more than 10% in strong public support for Yushchenko, the candidate viewed as the anti-corruption and opposition leader, well, his opponent, the pro-Russian Yanukovych, is declared the winner by a small margin, 3%. Sensing that the election results might have been tampered with, protests break out across Ukraine, and this becomes known as the Orange Revolution. An estimated half a million protesters march outside the Ukrainian parliament in Kyiv, wearing orange ribbons and waving orange flags. Orange was the color often associated with Yushchenko's election campaign. After a week of protests that captured the attention of the world, the Ukrainian Supreme Court finally steps in and demands that a do-over election take place in a few weeks. So in late December 2004, there's a rerun election, and this election is conducted with a lot more protections and scrutiny, and also international observers are present to make sure the election is fair. And wouldn't you know it, in the second election, the free and fair election, Yushchenko flips the election result 
and wins by eight percentage points, 52% to 44%. And he goes on to be the third president of Ukraine. Again, the events around this election are known as the Orange Revolution. You might hear that referred to from time to time in the news when people are discussing Ukraine. It's important because it represents a time that Ukrainians stood up and demanded a different path than what they had been used to during the Soviet era. The days of, you know, faking an election and having the ruling class or oligarchs install whoever they wanted to be in charge were over. Now Ukraine was having real elections where votes actually counted. Despite the Orange Revolution and Yushchenko's win, the Yushchenko presidency was not very effective at bringing about meaningful change in the lives of ordinary Ukrainians. Yushchenko found it very difficult to put together a coalition government and get new policies through the Ukrainian parliament. Yushchenko had consistent conflicts with his main ally and prime minister, Yulia Tymoshenko. It's worth noting that he did have success in ending the oppression of journalists throughout the country, which was admirable. Yushchenko was also known for trying to protect and promote Ukrainian cultural identity. In early 2010, a Ukrainian court posthumously convicted Soviet leader Joseph Stalin for genocide against Ukrainians during the Holodomor, the Great Famine, in 1932 and 1933. Despite a couple small cultural wins economically, Ukraine continued to lag behind during the Yushchenko years, and the political divisions that rose up between eastern and western Ukraine in the 2004 election were never really addressed or healed. Now, during these Yushchenko years, Viktor Yanukovych, Yushchenko's defeated opponent in the 2004 election, well, he uses this time to do a little soul-searching. Yanukovych realized that people perceived him as this kind of unrefined, pro-Russian, gangster type from eastern Ukraine. So Yanukovych goes out and he hires an American political consultant named Paul Manafort, who would later chair Donald Trump's election campaign in 2016. Yanukovych hires Manafort to reform his image and give him a political makeover. And after this political makeover and consulting with Manafort, Yanukovych becomes much more of a polished politician. He's less brash. He hints in public that he might be open to Ukraine joining the EU He basically makes a smart, strategic move to be less offensive to many people in Ukraine and address some of the aspects that people didn't like about him in the previous election, the 2004 election. In 2010, after five years of political stagnation and a lack of meaningful economic growth during the Yushchenko years, another presidential election is held in Ukraine. This time Yanukovych actually wins a free and fair election with strong support from eastern and southern Ukraine. Early in his presidency, instead of using divisive language or coming off as polarizing or too pro-Russian, Yanukovych says he desires Ukraine to maintain its neutrality. He says he doesn't want Ukraine to join any military alliances like NATO, but he wants to see Ukraine integrated with EU. So he's using much less adversarial language, 
trying to dial down the temperature across the country. On the other hand, he imprisons his political opponent from the 2010 election, Yulia Tymoshenko, for supposedly abusing her office when she negotiated a gas deal with Russia in 2009. So his gangster, don't mess with me reputation still lingers around a little bit. So now we're caught up to around 2013. In late 2013, there's an offer on the table with the EU to grow closer economic ties between Ukraine and the EU. It's a symbolic deal more than anything. Just a first step towards the possibility of one day joining the EU. Young Ukrainians are very energized and excited by the idea of Ukraine joining the EU. As you can imagine, if you're a young Ukrainian, the idea of being able to easily travel to Spain or France or possibly attend a university in Berlin is very attractive. Ukraine joining the EU means it's going to be easier for you to secure a job in another Western European country if you're young and desire to live abroad. Young Ukrainians would gain the freedom and the ability to move around Europe as they so desired if Ukraine were to establish closer relations with the EU. Subsequently, young Ukrainians were really paying attention to whether this EU-Ukrainian association agreement was going to get signed or not. In November 2013, there were strong indications from the Yanukovych administration that things were moving along smoothly and the agreement was going to get signed. Well, at the last minute, Yanukovych decides not to sign the agreement. And instead, he announces that Ukraine would be seeking closer ties with Russia. Young people in Ukraine get really upset about this. And they decide to set up a public protest at Maidan Square in Kiev, and they don't leave for nine days. They stand and sit around, and they chant, Ukraine is Europe. This begins on November 21st, 2013, and it's known as the start of the Maidan Uprising. Just to set the scene for you, it's winter. It's very cold out. It's snowing. But young people just keep on hanging out in the square, chanting their slogans, and they keep protesting because they're very upset about the collapse of the EU deal. On November 30th, nine days after the protest began, police start beating up these young, cold, angry Ukrainian students. The violence grabs the attention of the entire nation, and suddenly, pissed-off parents of these kids that just got beat up show up to Maidan Square. So it's no longer just a bunch of pissed-off students and young people. It's pissed-off students plus their families. Estimates are that between 400,000 and 800,000 Ukrainians show up to protest the first weekend of December. To put this in perspective, you have to remember... Ukrainians thought this type of repressive violence was over when the Soviet Union died off. This was the first time a Ukrainian regime had used violence to suppress dissent since 1991. So the protests take on a new life and meeting after the violence with police. Suddenly the protests are no longer about whether Ukraine will join the EU or not, and if young people are going to be able to go travel around Europe easily or not, protests suddenly become about fighting corrupt power 
and people that use violence as a means of suppressing dissent. The protests continue throughout the winter, and there's occasional kidnappings by security forces and torturing of protesters. With each increase in violence by security forces, the resolve of Ukrainian protesters grows. The violence peaks between February 18th and 20th in 2014, when government snipers start shooting protesters during a clash with police. Over 100 Ukrainian protesters are killed, and over 1,100 are injured. On February 21st, 2014, shortly after signing an agreement for an interim government, Yanukovych decides it's time to get the hell out of Dodge, and he flees off to Russia. The Ukrainian parliament votes to remove Yanukovych from the presidency the following day on February 22nd. On February 22nd, Yanukovych's opponent from the last presidential election, Yulia Tymoshenko, is released from prison. A few days pass in late February, and Russia responds to this conflict in Ukraine by invading Crimea and annexing the peninsula that Soviet Russia had given Soviet Ukraine in 1954. Russia removes the Crimean prime minister that had been elected and installs Sergei Askyanov, a Ukrainian politician with ties to organized crime that had run as the Russian Unity Party candidate during the prior election in Crimea, and he only received 4% of the vote. So the guy that got 4% of the vote in the prior election, becomes the new puppet leader in Crimea, installed by the Russians after they annex Crimea. In eastern Ukraine, eastern Ukrainians start protesting after Yanukovych flees and a new interim government set up. Eastern Ukrainians were pissed off that a new acting president, Alexander Turchinov, was named. And it's understandable. They want to vote for a new president, not have one appointed. It didn't strike Eastern Ukrainians as very fair or democratic because it wasn't. Now, even though Eastern Ukrainians were upset, they weren't big fans of Yanukovych anymore at this point in time anyways. No one was really mourning the fact that he was gone. After seeing the violence and shooting on TV, 70% of Eastern Ukrainians said that Yanukovych wasn't the legal president of the country anymore. But still, they wanted to participate in a democracy and vote. And it didn't sit well with them that in Kyiv, Western Ukrainian leaders were just getting installed into office and not voted into office. In the weeks following the Maidan uprising, the Russians, in addition to annexing Crimea start sending little green men into eastern Ukraine to support the Russian separatist movement. The little green men were basically just Russian soldiers that weren't wearing any identifying patches. In April, Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine start taking over Ukrainian government buildings and declare that Donetsk and Luhansk, two regions in eastern Ukraine, are separating from Ukraine and becoming independent states. In response to this, the Ukrainian government announces on April 15th that they are commencing an anti-terrorist operation in eastern Ukraine to restore Ukrainian control over the region. Fighting then begins in eastern Ukraine between Ukrainian government forces and Russian separatists in mid-April, 
2014. So now we're caught all the way up from the 8th century to April 2014. Let's do a very quick recap of all the material we just covered. In the 8th century, the Vikings are looking for a water route to the Byzantine Empire, and they happen upon a village on the Dnipro River called Kiev. Christianity is spreading across Europe, and the pressures of the Vikings, Byzantines, and Franks lead to the creation of Kievan Rus in 880. Kievan Rus is around for almost 400 years, till about the year 1240, when the Mongols show up and destroy the place. The Mongols, ever the party poopers, split shortly after they destroy the place, and Lithuania moves in and scoops up a lot of land that used to be Kievan Rus. Lithuania eventually joins with Poland to form the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is around until about the year 1795. All through this time, there's this group known as the Cossacks, who exist in southern Polish-Lithuania, and they take pride in their independence and autonomy, and they change their allegiance between Poland and Russia and Sweden, depending on how their interests would be affected. After the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth falls apart, the Russian Empire has almost two centuries of glory. The Russian Empire takes over a lot of lands that are today Ukraine and Belarus during the 18th and 19th century. Though the Russian Empire was already weakening before World War I, the war really seals the deal and the Russian Empire falls apart. When the Russian Empire falls, a Russian civil war breaks out, and for a brief moment, Ukraine declares its independence. After a few years of civil war in Russia, the Bolsheviks the socialists, win the war and establish the Soviet Union in 1922. Independent Ukraine becomes Soviet Ukraine, and the people in Soviet Ukraine endure famine, purges, and lots of death between the 1920s and 1930s. World War II leads to Ukraine gaining more territory in its western region. In 1954, Khrushchev gifts Crimea to Ukraine, in the 1980s, the USSR becomes very weak due to shortages of goods, a dysfunctional economy, inflation, ineffective reforms, high defense spending, the loss of the Afghan war, and the nuclear accident at Chernobyl. The Soviet Union falls apart in late 1991, and Ukraine votes to become an independent country in December 1991. Ukraine struggles to make that smooth transition from a socialist economy to a capitalist economy throughout the 1990s. The Orange Revolution takes place in 2004 after it becomes pretty obvious that the Ukrainian 2004 presidential election was a sham. A new election is held and the first somewhat EU-friendly president, Yushchenko, wins. After five years of struggling to implement meaningful changes, the pro-EU party loses power, and the pro-Russian party wins, led by Yanukovych, in the 2010 election. In late 2013, after Yanukovych cancels plans at the last minute to sign an agreement to establish economic ties with the EU, the Maidan uprising begins. 
The protests don't let up for months and eventually become violent with police killing more than 100 protesters in Kyiv in February 2014. The pro-Russian Yanukovych flees Kyiv, goes to Russia. Russia responds by invading and annexing Crimea in late February 2014. And Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine start taking over government buildings and the Ukrainian government starts fighting with separatists in eastern Ukraine to restore order in mid-April 2014. All right, back to the conflict in 2014. Throughout late April and May of 2014, skirmishes break out in eastern Ukraine between Ukrainian government forces trying to reestablish government control in the region and pro-Russian separatists that are trying to establish new republics and break away from Ukraine. In late May 2014, there's a battle for control over Donetsk airport, leading to the death of around 40 insurgents. A few weeks later, in early June, it's believed that the Ukrainian government was responsible for an airstrike on insurgents in Luhansk, killing eight and wounding more than 20. So in early June 2014, Russian separatists in eastern Ukraine start to zero in on the danger that planes in the sky above them pose to their safety on the ground. In early June, commercial airspace is restricted to 26,000 feet and above in eastern Ukraine due to the conflict that's going on on the ground below. In mid-June, Russian tanks and rocket launchers are moved from Russia across the border into eastern Ukraine and into the hands of Russian separatists. On June 14, 2014, a Ukrainian Air Force plane is shot out of the sky while attempting to land at Luhansk International Airport, killing 49 people on board. Five days later, on June 19, Thousands of pro-Russian insurgents battle against government forces around the town of Yampol. Some reports stated that more than 300 insurgents died, partially due to airstrikes. A Ukrainian Air Force Su-25 fighter jet was shot out of the sky during this battle around Yampol. So by late June 2014, there's been a major escalation of fighting between Ukrainian government forces and pro-Russian insurgents in eastern Ukraine. Thousands of fighters are battling against each other. Tanks are being used. Ukrainian Air Force planes are striking insurgent positions with airstrikes. And planes are getting shot out of the sky. It's almost as if a full-scale war is on the verge of breaking out. On June 20th, the Ukrainian government calls for a ceasefire to try and bring down the temperature on the situation. The ceasefire ends on July 1st, and fighting between the two sides resumes. On July 9th and July 10th, both sides fight for control over Luhansk Airport and Donetsk Airport. 23 Ukrainian government soldiers are killed from a rocket attack in Luhansk, on July 12th, Ukrainian forces respond with airstrikes in Luhansk and Donetsk that kill hundreds of insurgents. Two days later, on July 14th, Russian separatists shoot down a Ukrainian transport plane. The restricted commercial airspace floor above Ukraine is extended from 26,000 
to 32,000 feet in light of all the fighting occurring on the ground in eastern Ukraine. On July 15th, 11 Ukrainians are killed in the town of Shnizne in Donetsk due to airstrikes from Ukrainian Air Force planes. The following day, on July 16th, two Ukrainian fighter jets are shot out of the sky. The next day, on July 17th, journalists working for Associated Press see a Buk surface-to-air missile system near the town of Shnizne, the town that two days earlier, on July 15th, had been hit by an airstrike by the Ukrainian Air Force. The journalists report that the system was being operated by a man with a distinctive Russian accent. So this is the situation in eastern Ukraine on July 17th, 2014. Ukrainian government forces are battling pro-Russian insurgents for control in the region. They've been at battle with one another for the previous three months. The Ukrainian government is using their air force to launch airstrikes against insurgent positions in eastern Ukraine. Pro-Russian insurgents are accepting military equipment and missile systems from Russia and shooting Ukrainian Air Force planes out of the sky. In the prior three months, 16 military aircraft have been shot down in the region. In June, all commercial aircraft were restricted to flying at 26,000 feet and above. Then the fighting intensified. So on July 14th, that flight restriction has moved higher to 32,000 feet. In the three days before July 17th, pro-Russian insurgents have shot three Ukrainian Air Force planes out of the sky. AP journalist Siabuk surface-to-air missile system on July 17th in eastern Donetsk, an area controlled by pro-Russian insurgents. And this is the environment that our flight Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 is about to fly into. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Now let's move back to Flight 17. It's July 17th, 2014, and 93 minutes into the flight, the Boeing 777, with 298 souls on board, crosses above the Polish-Ukrainian border. Flight 17 is headed southeast, flying at an altitude of 33,000 feet, 1,000 feet above the 32,000-foot flight restriction for eastern Ukrainian airspace. The plane cruises along at 33,000 feet, flying over western Ukraine. 34 minutes after crossing the border, Flight 17 flies just south of Kiev. Two hours and 22 minutes into the flight, as the Boeing 777 is flying just to the north of the Ukrainian industrial city of Kremenchuk. One of the pilots of Flight 17 radios over to air traffic control. Hello, Nipro. Malaysia 17, flight level 330. The air traffic controller at Nipro notices that another Boeing 777 
is flying behind Flight 17 at the same altitude, 33,000 feet. The air traffic controller wants to get better separation between the two planes, so they respond, Malaysian 17 Nipro radar, hello, identified, advise, able to climb flight level 350. So the air traffic controller is asking flight 17 to climb 2,000 more feet to 35,000, so both planes aren't flying at the exact same altitude. A pilot from Flight 17 responds to the ATC request, Malaysian 17, negative, we are maintained 330. Air traffic control responds, Malaysian 17, roger. Since Flight 17's pilots decided to remain at 33,000 feet, air traffic control requests the flight behind Flight 17 to climb to 35,000 feet, and that flight crew complies with the request. A few minutes pass, and the pilots of Flight 17 notice that straight ahead of them are some thunderstorm clouds. Understandably, the flight crew has no desire to try and fly through thunderstorm clouds. So seven minutes after their first transmission to air traffic control, a pilot on Flight 17 radios, Nipro, Malaysian 17, okay, start to two zero miles to the left of track due to weather. So the pilot is asking to turn a little to the north to avoid the clouds. Air traffic control responds, Malaysian 17, roger, cleared to avoid. Flight 17 responds, Roger, cleared two zero miles left, Malaysian 17. A few seconds pass, and a pilot on Flight 17 radios, Malaysian 17, is level 340 non-standard available? So he's asking to change the plane's altitude to 34,000 feet. Air traffic control responds, Malaysian 17, maintain flight level 330 for a while. 340 is not available for now. So air traffic control denies that altitude change request. After this exchange, Flight 17 turns a little bit to the left of its scheduled flight path and flies for five minutes in that direction in order to avoid the thunderstorm clouds. Five minutes after turning to the left, Flight 17 turns back to the right and flies a path parallel to its scheduled flight path, still headed towards the southeast. For the next 10 minutes, Flight 17 flies at 33,000 feet, parallel and just to the north of its scheduled flight path. Two hours and 37 minutes into the flight, one hour and four minutes since crossing into Ukrainian airspace, Flight 17 is passed on from one area control center to another as the plane flies between the Ukrainian cities of Dnipro and Donetsk. 15 minutes after deviating from its original flight path to bypass the storm clouds, Flight 17 makes another slight turn to the right to try and rejoin its original course. A Russian air traffic controller calls over to Dnipro air traffic control two hours and 48 minutes into the flight. The Russian says, So Dnipro, Rostov 1, can you give a course for Malaysian to Rostov to the Romeo November Delta Point? We have three converging traffic there. The Dnipro controller asks, to the Malaysian that is 17? 
The Russian air traffic controller responds, Yes, we will return it then to Tikna. Tikna is an air navigation waypoint. Dnipro air traffic control responds, Great, okay. Just to clarify, the Russian controller says to point RND. Dnipro replies, okay, and the Russian controller says, yeah, thanks. The time is now 4.19 p.m., local time in eastern Ukraine, in the afternoon of July 17th. Flight 17 has been in the sky for the past 2 hours and 48 minutes. The Boeing 777 is cruising along at 33,000 feet, flying just to the east of the city of Donetsk. Flight 17 is right about to rejoin its scheduled flight path after deviating from it for the past 19 minutes to avoid a thunderstorm. A Russian air traffic controller noticed some air traffic and calls Dnipro air traffic control to ask them to relay a slight course correction to the pilots of Flight 17 to keep a safe distance between planes. About 20 seconds after this exchange between the air traffic controller in Dnipro and the air traffic controller in Russia, Dnipro radios over to Flight 17. Malaysian 17, due traffic, proceed direct to Point Romeo November Delta. Seven seconds later, a pilot from Flight 17 answers back, Romeo November Delta, Malaysian 17. This was the final transmission sent from Malaysia Airlines Flight 17. A few seconds after this exchange, at around 4.20 p.m. on July 17, 2014, as Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 flies at 33,000 feet while approaching the Donetsk and Luhansk border, the Boeing 777 suddenly begins to break apart and plummets down towards the earth below. Pieces of the plane, around the cockpit and business class section, separate from the plane first. As Flight 17 continues to fall through the sky, the rear section of the fuselage separates from the middle fuselage section, just behind where the wings are attached to the plane. Ukrainians on the ground below witness as debris begins to rain down from the sky. Five massive rolls of white textile that were each over 300 feet long and were in Flight 17's cargo hold, become completely unfurled and slowly sink through the sky to the ground below like streamers. The air traffic controller at Dnipro radios over and over again. Malaysian 17, Dnipro radar. Malaysia 17, Dnipro radar. Air traffic control receives no response. Singapore Airlines Flight 351, a flight that was going from Copenhagen to Singapore, is flying only 16 miles behind Flight 17. Air traffic control at Dnipro radios, Singapore, do you have any traffic in sight of you? The pilot on Singapore Flight 351 responds, Singapore 351, negative, no indication of traffic on TCAS. Moments later, many of the bodies of Flight 17 passengers start impacting the ground. One body crashes through the roof of a home in the small eastern Ukrainian village of Rosapin. Dozens of bodies are scattered around the countryside along with debris from the plane. 
As the center fuselage section of the plane impacts the ground, a huge fireball is released upward into the sky. The impact is seen by many Ukrainians on the ground, and plumes of black smoke stretch into the air. The wreckage from Flight 17 was spread over a 19-square-mile area in Donetsk Oblast, north of the eastern Ukrainian city of Torres. 35 minutes after Flight 17 began its breakup in the sky, a Russian separatist leader named Igor Gurkin posts on a Russian social media site, We warned them not to fly in our sky, and bragged about shooting down an AN-26 military transport plane in the Torres region of eastern Ukraine. Gherkin also shared videos of plumes of black smoke from the crash site. Men in military clothing, thought to be a part of Russian separatist forces, arrive at the crash site and quickly realize that the wreckage is from a passenger plane. One Russian separatist says on the video, who gave them the corridor, meaning who gave them the right to fly through this area. The separatists go through luggage and discover civilian clothes and travel supplies, which further confirms their fears that a passenger plane, not a military plane, has just been shot down. The social media post from Gherkin, the Russian separatist leader that bragged about the shootdown of a military plane, is promptly deleted. All 298 souls on board Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 were killed on July 17, 2014. Again, 80 of the 298 on board were kids, persons under 18 years old. Obviously, the world was horrified in the aftermath of the destruction of Flight 17. Because Flight 17 originated in Amsterdam, the Dutch Safety Board was in charge of the investigation. Investigators quickly focused their attention on the metal fragments that were found inside the bodies of the captain and first officer of Flight 17. The fragments that they found in the bodies of the pilots had two distinct shapes. They were either bow tie shaped or cubic or square. And embedded in these metal fragments were pieces of glass and aluminum. And what this told investigators was that something exploded outside the plane near the cockpit. This explosion sent shrapnel, or small pieces of metal, at a very high rate of speed through the plane. Glass from the cockpit windows and metal from the fuselage of the plane became embedded in the fragment as the fragment went through the side of the plane. Then the fragments, embedded with glass and aluminum, went into the bodies of the pilots. The cockpit voice recorder also provided more evidence that an external explosion occurred outside the plane. When investigators listened to the cockpit voice recorder, there was no indication that there were any issues going on inside the plane throughout the flight until the very end of the recording. There was no discussion between pilots about any issues. There were no warning sounds going off in the cockpit at any time. But at the very end of the cockpit voice recording, in the last 20 milliseconds of the recording, investigators were able to identify two sound peaks. There were four microphones in the cockpit and the first sound peak lasted only 2.1 milliseconds, 
with only one microphone picking up a sound, which was attributed to an electrical spike. The second sound peak lasted 2.3 milliseconds and was picked up by all four microphones in the cockpit. Since the second sound peak was picked up by all four microphones, each microphone had a slightly different timestamp for the sound. And through this, the investigators were able to determine the position of the sound. The sound was first recorded by the pilot's microphone on the left side of the cockpit. Shortly after, the sound was picked up by the right pilot's microphone and the observer microphone in the cockpit. This told investigators that a very loud sound occurred right at the end of the CVR, and it originated outside the plane and above the left-hand side of the cockpit. Investigators called the sound wave a highly energetic sound wave. Investigators transported parts of the wreckage found in eastern Ukraine to the Netherlands to be reconstructed at a Dutch airbase. The report states that over 800 pieces of shrapnel penetrated the area around the cockpit. There were 102 puncture holes alone in one cockpit window that was recovered from one of the wreckage sites. Investigators believe that this cockpit window was the area where the most concentrated amount of shrapnel entered the plane. The combination of evidence from the shrapnel and the cockpit voice recorder told investigators that there must have been a very powerful explosion outside of the front of the plane, just above the left side of the cockpit. And this explosion sprayed the cockpit with shrapnel, creating an explosive decompression and leading to the breaking apart of Flight 17. So after concluding that Flight 17 must have been brought down by an external explosion, investigators looked at the different kinds of weaponry in the area at the time. They looked at air-to-air guns or cannon fire. They thought maybe a fighter jet could have shot at the plane, but they concluded that no air-to-air gun or cannon fire would produce the type of cubic or bow-type shaped fragments that were found in the bodies of the pilots. Next, they considered air-to-air missiles. Maybe a fighter jet shot a missile at Flight 17. They examined air-to-air missiles and again concluded that no air-to-air missiles contained bow-tie-shaped fragments. Next, they looked at surface-to-air missile systems. Here, they found a particular kind of warhead that fits onto the top of missiles on a Buk surface-to-air missile system contain bow-tie and square-shaped fragments. Buk surface-to-air missile systems can hit planes flying at altitudes up to 80,000 feet. And the missiles used on Buk surface-to-air missile systems are radar-guided. It's worth noting that the explosion occurred near the cockpit, not near the engines, which told investigators that it wasn't a heat-seeking missile, but rather a radar-guided one. So now putting all the pieces together, the pilots were found with pieces of shrapnel in their bodies that were bow-tie and cubic-shaped. The pieces of shrapnel were embedded with glass and aluminum from the cockpit window and external fuselage surface of the plane. 
The end of the CVR picked up a loud noise from the left side of the cockpit that spread towards the right side of the cockpit. The reconstructed wreckage from the plane revealed hundreds of punctures towards the left front side of the cockpit. The only weapon system in the area known to have a warhead with bow tie and cubic shaped shrapnel was a Buk surface to air missile system. So given all this evidence, the Dutch safety board concluded that the destruction of Malaysia Airlines Flight 17 was due to the detonation of a warhead above the left-hand side of the cockpit, and the weapon used was a warhead carried on a missile installed on a Buk surface-to-air missile system. The Dutch Safety Board's report came out in October 2015, and it didn't really assign blame to Russian separatists, Russians, or Ukrainians for the downing of Flight 17. It did identify the region that the missile was most likely fired from, and was a region controlled by Russian separatists at the time of the incident. Bellingcat, a Netherlands-based investigative journalism group that specializes in analyzing open-source intel, released a report that detailed the suspected movement of the Buk missile system that brought down Flight 17 during mid-July 2014. According to the Bellingcat report, a Buk missile launcher originating with the 53rd Anti-Aircraft Missile Brigade in the Russian ground forces was the missile system that was used to shoot down Flight 17. In the morning of July 17, 2014, the missile system was in the city of Donetsk, and it was transported on a Volvo low-loader truck into the Torres region, during the late morning and early afternoon hours. Around 2.30 p.m., it was unloaded from the Volvo truck and then positioned in a field near the town of Shnizne in eastern Ukraine. Around two hours later, the system fired off the missile that carried the warhead that exploded outside of the cockpit of Flight 17. The following day, July 18th, the missile system was transported back to Russia. Photographs from the city of Luhansk on July 18th showed a Buk missile system on the back of a truck bed with only three missiles. Usually the systems have four, so it was missing one. The system also shared many similar characteristics seen in photos of a missile system located in the Shnizne area from the day before, the system suspected of being used to shoot down Flight 17. So given the evidence, the most likely explanation for what happened to Flight 17 was that Flight 17 was shot down by a Buk missile system controlled by either Russian separatists or Russian soldiers on July 17, 2014. It was likely a mistake they probably thought they were shooting down another Ukrainian military plane, but it was a serious mistake that caused the death of almost 300 civilians in an instant. The Dutch Safety Board made three recommendations in the report on Flight 17. The first recommendation called for better airspace management above conflict zones. The report called for a stronger more proactive role for the International Civil Aviation Organization in determining the closure or restriction of use of airspace. The second recommendation called for airlines to carry out their own risk assessments 
and not depend solely on states to assess the safety of their airspace. The third and last recommendation was that airlines should be more transparent with their passengers about the flight routes that they select. If an airline is planning on flying a plane through airspace above a conflict zone, they should inform their passengers well ahead of time so passengers can make a decision about whether to fly on that plane or not. These recommendations tie into how Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 made flying safer for the rest of us today. When you consider the other planes in the sky that day, Flight 17 was simply the unlucky plane that had to pay the price for the poor management of airspace above a region where an armed conflict was taking place on the ground. The airspace above eastern Ukraine was very dangerous. 16 aircraft were shot out of the sky in the prior three months. The Ukrainian Air Force was bombing insurgent positions in eastern Ukraine, and insurgents responded by getting ground-to-air missile systems and trying to shoot military planes out of the sky before their locations were bombed. Despite this dangerous situation, 160 planes flew over this area on July 17th alone. As we discussed during the story, Singapore Airlines Flight 351 was only 16 miles behind Flight 17. That Singapore Airlines flight easily could have been the one to get shot out of the sky. It's only a matter of time. And unfortunately, Flight 17 was the unlucky flight that had to pay the price for the bad decision to keep the airspace above eastern Ukraine open. So Flight 17 really highlighted for the commercial aviation industry that flying above a conflict zone, even at 33,000 feet, was still very dangerous and needed to be avoided at all costs. There was an assumption in the industry that those with surface-to-air missile systems probably had access to radar systems that could distinguish between civilian and military planes, and the shootdown of Flight 17 really shattered this false belief. Here on the podcast, we've seen other shootdowns, such as Korean Airlines Flight 007 from 1983, or Iran Air Flight 655 from 1988. Hopefully, Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 is the final reminder that commercial aviation needs to avoid flying over areas where tensions are high on the ground below. Just a couple more notes on Flight 17. Flight 17 is the deadliest aircraft shootdown in aviation history, with 298 souls lost on July 17, 2014. Around two-thirds of the passengers on board, 193 passengers, were Dutch citizens. On November 17, 2022, the District Court of The Hague sentenced three individuals to life sentences for causing the shootdown of Flight 17 and the murder of 298 human beings on board. Sergei Dubinsky, Igor Gurkin, and Leonid Karchenko were the three persons sentenced by the court. Karchenko is a Ukrainian national that was a commander of a combat unit in Donetsk on the day of the shootdown. He was accused of escorting the missile system into Ukraine and then helping to move it back to Russia after the shootdown. Karchenko took orders from Dubinsky. Dubinsky is a Russian intelligence officer in the GRU that was advising Russian separatists in July 2014. 
Dubinsky was seen as instrumental in getting the missile system into and out of Ukraine on July 17th and the 18th. Gherkin was a colonel in the FSB, and he was also accused of playing a large role in getting the missile system into Ukraine. All three have yet to be arrested by Dutch authorities. Uh, Just as a side note, Gherkin was recently arrested by Russian authorities in Moscow in late July 2023. He had recently made extremely critical comments about Vladimir Putin. Gherkin called Putin a lowlife and a cowardly bum on a social media network. Not a very smart move in Putin's Russia in 2023. Gherkin was charged with inciting extremist activity, and uh, hopefully the Russians keep him in jail for a little while. Australian couple John and Kaylee Mann of Brisbane, Australia, were impacted by two Malaysia Airlines flights in 2014, both Flight 17 and Flight 370 the plane that disappeared after takeoff from Kuala Lumpur in March 2014. Kayleen's brother and sister-in-law were on board Flight 17, and Kayleen's husband, John, lost his daughter from another marriage and her husband on board Flight 370 earlier in the year. 2014 was a pretty rough year for that couple. Together, they lost four members of their family in two different plane incidents, only separated by about four months. I hope they're doing okay in 2023. There's been a few different conspiracy theories that have spread about Flight 17. Conspiracy theories spread like wildfire about any event that occurs in the 21st century, and Flight 17 is unfortunately no different. One conspiracy theory, put forth by the head of Ukraine's Secret Service in 2014, Valentin Nalevachenko, posited that the Russian separatists were actually trying to shoot down a Russian civilian passenger plane as a false flag operation to get Russia to overtly join the armed conflict in the summer of 2014. The intelligence head stated that Russian separatists took the missile system to the wrong town and then shot down the wrong plane. I haven't seen much evidence that any other government agency or reputable research firm has supported this theory. Another conspiracy theory, started by one of those convicted in the district court of The Hague, Igor Gherkin, stated that the passengers on board Flight 17 were already dead. Gherkin said that the bodies at the crash scene were not fresh and had been drained of blood. I'd like to hop in again and ask the good old Russians to please keep this guy in jail as long as they can. Humanity sure would appreciate it. Another few Russian theories on Flight 17 were that it was shot down by the Ukrainian Air Force or a Ukrainian surface-to-air missile system, and that the actual target was Putin's plane. Putin was apparently returning to Moscow from Brazil at the time. Both of these theories seem highly unlikely to the rest of the world and after considering the evidence. And I think that's going to do it for Flight 17. I hope you all found the story to be interesting Uh, Personally, I didn't know much about the history of Eastern Europe before doing the research for today's show. I think the uh, current war in Ukraine between Russia and Ukraine is arguably the most consequential event occurring in the world today. History is currently being shaped by this war. I thought that Flight 17 and this episode was an opportunity for everyone to learn a little bit about the background on the conflict. 
Over history, the people in the region of modern-day Ukraine have been consistently dominated by outside powers, ever since the 8th century and maybe even earlier. Whether it was the small pagan tribes of the 8th century, the Cossacks in the 17th and 18th century, Ukrainian nationalists after World War I and during the Soviet era, and today the modern Ukrainians, Ukraine has always had a population that's been treated pretty poorly by a foreign group with more resources. That powerful foreign power has been the Vikings, the Lithuanians, the Russian Empire, the Germans in World War II, the Russian Soviets during the Soviet Union era, and today it's the Russians again. These foreign powers have eyed Ukraine as a place to grow food or a place to use for a path to the Black Sea, or a place with coal and gas deposits to be exploited. No one seems to ask themselves what would be best for the people that actually live there. It's always been, how can we conquer it, colonize it, and use it for our own ends? So hopefully through today's episode, we all have a greater understanding of what is happening there today. This is another struggle, and a long history of struggles Another chapter of an outside power trying to come in and establish domination over the people and resources in this region and steal those resources to use as their own. Well, I hope everyone found something useful in listening to today's story. And now for a few items from the world of airline news. We'll start with some good news for all you peyote and mescaline lovers. United Airlines has announced that they will be adding four flights from the U.S. to the small hippie town of Tulum, Mexico. Tulum is a favorite destination of social media influencer types that love posting shots of their beach vacays online. In the past, those wanting to get to Tulum generally had to fly to Cancun and then make the two-hour-plus drive from Cancun to Tulum. Well, given the rise in Tulum's popularity, an international airport was built in 2022 and 2023 for tourists seeking easier access to the town. Beginning on March 31st, 2024, United Airlines will offer flights from Houston, Newark, and Chicago. And beginning in late May 2024, a daily flight will be added between LAX and Los Angeles to Tulum as well. Tulum's new airport opened on December 1st. Spirit Airlines, Delta Airlines, and American Airlines also have plans to service flights to Tulum starting in early 2024. So it looks like anyone that wants to get to Tulum is going to have an easier path to doing so come 2024. If any of you go and a stranger on the beach tells you that you just have to try some of his delicious hot tea, I'm warning you, tell him no. It would be a bad idea unless you think writhing on the ground of a damp cave for 16 hours straight while you chat with the ghost of Montezuma is a good way to spend your vacation. That sounds good to you? Then by all means, take that sip. Next up on Sunday, November 26, 2023, the Transportation Security Administration, TSA, announced that the agency screened the most passengers ever in a single day in the U.S., The agency screened over 2.9 million passengers traveling on Sunday at the end of a busy Thanksgiving weekend. Three years ago in 2020, during the COVID-19 pandemic, 
TSA screened only 632,000 passengers on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. That means that in 2023, TSA screened almost 4.6 times as many passengers compared to the same Sunday in 2020. So it appears that most air passengers are comfortable flying once again post-pandemic. Thank you to all the TSA officers out there that put in extra hours over the holiday weekends to ensure that millions of travelers could be with their families and travel safely over our holiday weekends. Here's a feel-good story just in time for the holidays. A New Zealand couple has received a $1,400 refund from Singapore Airlines after a recent unpleasant flight experience. The couple was flying from Paris to Singapore and was seated next to a canine passenger in Singapore Airlines' premium economy section. During the 13-hour flight from Paris to Singapore, the pooch apparently had a consistent flatulence issue, an issue that was problematic enough to make the couple give up their premium economy seats and switch to regular economy seats. After some back and forth with the airline, the couple was refunded the difference between their premium economy fare and the regular economy fare, which turned out to be $1,400. The couple announced that they planned to donate the $1,400 to an animal charity, I'm guessing that must have been quite the unpleasant odor to get a couple to willingly move to economy. I like to think that maybe the dog had a master plan all along, and he just kind of acted strategically to secure himself a comfortable airborne dog bed for a 13-hour flight. The pooting pooch. Well played, Spot. Well played. And for our final story, Alaska Airlines has announced that it has a deal in place to acquire Hawaiian Airlines for $1.9 billion dollars. The deal is expected to be closed over the next 12 to 18 months. Alaska Airlines is expected to retain the Hawaiian Airlines brand name, which is a different approach than Alaska used when it acquired Virgin America in 2016 and quickly absorbed the airline. Alaska Airlines is the fifth largest airline in the United States. With the move, Alaska is lined up to dominate the Hawaiian market by controlling almost 40% of the flights to the Hawaiian Islands. Hawaiian Airlines currently operates both Airbus and Boeing planes, so the move may end up changing Alaska's fleet. Alaska currently only operates Boeing 737s and Embraer 175s. I hope this has minimal impacts on all the people that work for Hawaiian Airlines. I've always thought it was interesting that the two non-contiguous U.S. states each have their own respective airlines. At least it's cool that the Hawaiian Airlines brand name will still be sticking around. I love seeing their planes with their little purple tails. Well, I think that's going to do it for today's episode of PCPC. I hope you all had an amazing 2023, and I wish you all a most excellent 2024. I hope you're doing something meaningful with your lives and making your families and friends and neighbors' lives better and easier. Thank you to everyone that emails us and writes us on Twitter and supports us on Patreon. This podcast has always been really special to me, and it makes me feel good to know that people out in the world still notice it and appreciate it. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode, and I'll work on getting you another one as soon as I can. I know that they've been coming out pretty slow, but I've been buried at work and in life, and I'm doing the best I can. I love you all and wish you all the best. Until next time, take care and enjoy life. Bye-bye. 
This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.